Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, you know, heart disease is the most common killer here in the U.S., worldwide, has been that way for 70 years now. I really came to recognize um, throughout my career as a heart surgeon over the past 20 years that we were failing. I am still a very busy heart surgeon. All the heart surgeons out there are very busy. If this has been our, I would put forth, main focus in medicine uh, for the past 50 years, why isn't it it getting better heart disease is a preventable disease wow. and it is due to the food that we eat and even that is actually a controversial statement you right. know within the medical community the real missing factor what we should be focusing on is inflammation specifically inflammation in the blood vessels and the role of what we call insulin resistance in the development of heart disease Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Philip Ovedia here who wrote the book, How to Stay Off, well, Stay Off My Operating Table, which uh, when you sent this to me and I got a chance to peruse it, I was, I've had a long desire to have someone on the podcast to give some clarity to people about heart disease, about cholesterol, about statins, about what, through my experience, has been a lot of, uh, I hate to use this word, but misinformation about what's really happening and what's really going on and what really causes it. Um, for you listening, uh, Dr. Ovedia has done over 3,000 heart surgeries and uh, is the founder of the Ovedia Heart Health. And uh, yeah, just incredible. I, this book is so good, and I'm really excited to chat with you. I'm curious, why do people ultimately end up on your operating table. Yeah, great to be here with you, Mark, and really excited to uh, dig into this with you. So, you know, heart disease is the most common killer um, 
here in the U.S., worldwide, has been that way for 70 years now. And appropriately, we focus a lot on that in the medical system. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really came to recognize um, throughout my career as a heart surgeon over the past 20 years that we were failing. I am still a very busy heart surgeon. All the heart surgeons out there are very busy. uh, And we really need to start asking why that is. If this has been our, I would put forth, main focus in medicine uh, for the past 50 years, why isn't it getting better? Yeah. We have all these medications that have been put forth as, you know, miracles. And I remember starting my career as a heart surgeon 20 years ago and being told, why are you going into that specialty? It's going to disappear. There's going to be no one for you to take care of. Like we figured it out. We have the solution. And in 20 years, you know, there's going to be no more heart surgery. And uh, the reality is here we are 20 years later. I'm busier than ever taking care of younger and younger people, which is what's really most distressing. And so, you know, that's why I started asking some different questions seeking out different information. You know, it's not necessarily misinformation, but I think it's misunderstanding. And I think it's some blindness, some bias, because we've been so focused on one aspect of heart disease uh, that we really uh, missed the big picture as to why people end up on my operating table. How did we come up with that one cause? Like, when you look at the origin or the history of heart disease, has it been something that humans have had since, you know, the dawn of time? Yeah, it really doesn't seem to be, uh, certainly not to the levels that we see it today. You know, when you look at the statistics here in the U.S., um, and you go back to the early 1900s, we have the kind of reports of the leading physicians of the day, and, you know, they would kind of spell out, everything that they saw, everything that they took care of, and heart disease was incredibly rare. Uh, Physicians would go their entire career without seeing a case, uh, without seeing a heart attack. Starting in the early 1900s, we see a slow increase, and it really started accelerating, um, you know, right around World War II. Uh, Afterwards, came to a crisis point here in the U.S., uh, you know, 1955, President Eisenhower, while in office, has a heart attack. And this, of course, set off the alarm bells appropriately. Mm -hmm. And people started asking, why are we seeing so much heart disease suddenly? There were two prevailing theories at the time that were really put forth. Um, Both focused on the food that we were eating. And one thought it was the fat in the food that we were eating, specifically the saturated fat. And the other camp really thought it was the sugar in the food that we were eating. Mm -hmm. And for various reasons that weren't purely scientific, I'll say, the fat theory got promoted and it became the prevailing hypothesis, what we call the diet heart hypothesis. And there was some evidence put forward that supported it. There was a lot of evidence at the time that disagreed with it. Um, But like I said, it won out. And that now, since the 1950s, has been the prevailing hypothesis about what causes heart disease. The fat that we eat causes our blood cholesterol levels to go up. And those increased blood cholesterol levels are the primary cause of heart disease. Uh, And so that led to 
medications to try and lower cholesterol. It led to dietary recommendations to try and get the saturated fat and the cholesterol out of our diets. And here we are 70 years later and heart disease remains the number one killer. And that's why myself, many others have started to say, well, maybe that underlying hypothesis wasn't correct. Maybe it's incomplete. Something's got to be wrong because we've had all the low-fat foods. Yeah. We've seen dietary consumption change. Our consumption of saturated fat is down about 40% compared to uh, 1970. Um, Cholesterol-lowering medications have been the most widely prescribed class of medications uh, for 30 years now. And we're really not seeing a meaningful change in the incidence of heart disease. Yeah, it's so interesting as you say all that, because as uh, I was born in 78, so the 80s and 90s, so much of the marketing messaging I was given about food was fat is bad. You saw fat free on things like Twizzlers, you know, unlike licorice, you know, just because the marketing, of course, people were drawn to that. Oh, I don't want to get heart disease, so I'll just avoid fat, but I'll crush candy, sugar, potato chips, you know, all these foods. I'm... It was in, it was when I first started as a rep, I worked for a company and sold a, a statin. And within, it was honestly within about two weeks of starting that the statin actually got pulled off the market. And uh, I, I never really thought much of statins. I, I like thought about them, I mean, in that I did, I was convinced that they were this miracle product and cholesterol was the, I mean, as a rep, you go through the training you're getting is not in uh, the counterpoint to the product you're selling, right? So it wasn't until probably about, yeah, 10, 12 years after being a rep and I'd moved through, sold different stuff for different areas. And I went to a family doctor just to get a routine blood test and it came back that I had high cholesterol. And the doctor said to me, who I didn't know, he was like, hey, you know, we're going to have to refer you to a lipid clinic. And I thought, well, this is, that seems like a little aggressive, you know, like I'm fit, I exercise a lot, I'm eating pretty mindfully, but at the time I was doing the bulletproof, but I was saying before we hit record that I wasn't going with low carbohydrate, maybe you can tell me how that impacts things. I hadn't dropped them enough. And... I went home and I started to research cholesterol and my whole, I felt like my brain melted because I felt like everything I'd been taught or a lot of it was wrong. And it was probably the first time in that industry when I was in it, that it kind of was like taking the red pill, you know, I'm like, wait, but I've been taught and this is what everyone talks about at rounds. And this is how could everybody be convinced that this is it when I dove deeper into that. So, yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on on what I've shared. Yeah, so similar perspective. You know, I started medical school in 1994, and by that time, statins were already the most widely prescribed class of medications. And all I learned essentially about heart disease and how to prevent it was check people's LDL cholesterol levels, and if it's, if it's elevated – prescribe a statin. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you know, for the majority, the first part of my career, 
I really didn't think too much about it. You know, I was a heart surgeon. I was a very busy heart surgeon. Uh, quite frankly, I was too busy taking care of sick people to really think about this underlying problem. And, you know, there were um, little things that I would look at and think a little bit about, like, okay, why are so many of the patients that I'm operating on taking these medications and they're still coming to me for an operation? And, you know, there was the usual explanations. Well, we didn't start it early enough. We haven't been aggressive enough. We need to get cholesterol levels lower and lower. And this is the narrative that you see, you know, as you look at the guidelines and you look at the recommendations. Um, And, of course, now, you know, After statins, we've gotten even more powerful drugs, what are called the PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, And you see um, physician leaders out there that are saying we should be starting these medications on teenagers. We should be dropping their cholesterol levels to incredibly low uh, levels. You know, through my personal journey, because go back 10 years And I was a very unhealthy heart surgeon. Mm -hmm. I was morbidly obese. I was pre-diabetic. And I recognized that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. I was going down that same path that so many of my patients had gone down. And like so many of them, I didn't know what to do about it because I was following the advice that I had learned to Mm. give. You know, I was eating less and moving more. I was eating the low-fat diet. And it wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for my patients. And that's what really, you know, started my questioning, taking the red pill, as you said. Um, You know, uh, actually, uh, because of some issues that my wife was having, uh, it was suggested to her that she eliminate gluten from her diet. And um, quite frankly... At the time, I remember thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, she doesn't have celiac disease. Uh, but I did it with her being a supportive husband. And I noticed I felt better. Mm. And, you know, it set off a little bit of a uh, that little voice in the head saying, well, why is this? And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I really got uh, my real journey in this started when I uh, heard Gary Taubes deliver a talk at a medical conference, ironically enough, a conference of heart surgeons. And, um, you know, his at that time, he had just written the case against sugar. So I, you know, read his books, eliminated sugar, went through a ketogenic diet, ultimately evolving to a carnivore diet. And, you know, I lost um, nearly 100 pounds, have been able to maintain that weight loss, reversed my prediabetes. And along the way, I kind of came to that same realization that you did, that what I had been taught about cholesterol and heart disease was not the full story. And really, at this point, I think it's a distraction. It has sent us down the wrong pathway because when we tell people you need to get the fat out of your food, that pushes them towards overly processed food that contains Mm -hmm. more sugar, more refined carbohydrates, uh, more vegetable and seed oils and all of these things that we did not evolve as human beings eating. And that has really led me to understand Uh, First and foremost, that heart disease is a preventable disease, and it is due to the food that we eat. And even that is actually a controversial statement within the medical community. When you say, well, we can prevent 
heart disease by just telling people to change the food that they eat? Most doctors say, no, we can't because we tried that. We tried telling them eat a low-fat diet and it didn't work. So that must right. prove that, you know, it's not about your diet. It's genetics. And somehow our human genetics have changed in the past hundred <laughs> years that all of a yeah. sudden heart disease became common instead of looking at the food environment that we've created. That's super interesting to think when you put it like that, it's our genes that are causing it, yet our genes have not changed in a hundred years, you know, at least not significantly, not enough to cause such a dramatic increase. And if you look like when, when you look at food and the people that have ended up on your operating table, you know, is there a commonality to the way that they eat? Is it high processed, high sugar, like that kind of thing? Yeah, certainly is. Uh, you know, and it's very common that people will say to me, you know, when I start talking to them now about the food that they eat, and they'll say, well, I'm eating a healthy diet, you know, and uh, I'm eating the low-fat food, and I'm eating, you know, the 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 cereal out of the box, but it says heart healthy on it, right. so <laughs> right. I don't understand, you know, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's very interesting now, you know, uh, when I can talk to people about this, and uh, really, you know, first of all, I'm oftentimes the first doctor in their whole journey along heart disease who has actually asked them what they ate because uh, mm. it's something that we really don't talk about much in medicine anymore because uh, like I said it's the the underlying consensus is that nutrition uh, nutritional recommendations are ineffective right so most doctors honestly they just don't ask anymore about what foods you're eating uh, and um, and then if someone, does get asked or, you know, has gotten uh, some guidance on to what we eat, it's largely going to be um, based on the food pyramid and low yeah. fat. And uh, that, I would say, is ineffective nutritional advice, but it doesn't mean that all nutritional advice is ineffective. Yeah, you know, that doctor, when I got that blood test, never asked what I ate. And I remember thinking, like, you haven't even asked me anything about my life. And like what I do, what I eat. I'm, so for when you look at the commonly held misconceptions, what do you see as being the maybe the greatest misconception? Yeah, so I think the greatest misconception ends up being this diet heart hypothesis that okay. eating saturated fat um, raises your blood cholesterol level and that raised blood cholesterol level is the is primary driver it. of what's causing your heart disease. And ultimately, both parts of that hypothesis now, uh, I would say, are wrong. You know, the relationship between how much fat and saturated fat is in our diet and our blood cholesterol levels is actually inconsistent. Um, some people, it's, you know, more saturated fat means more cholesterol, other people do not. Uh, so that's an inconsistent relationship. And then the second part of it, that increased <laughs> blood cholesterol level in and of itself is a driver of heart disease uh, is clearly wrong as well. And the evidence there is that we see plenty of people who show up with advanced heart disease without having raised blood cholesterol so they have levels. normal cholesterol. Yeah. And then we see plenty of people now that we're starting to recognize that have increased blood cholesterol levels, yet no evidence of heart disease. 
So there's got to be something else going on there, and uh, we can certainly get into that. Uh, but I believe the real missing factor, what we should be focusing on, is inflammation, specifically inflammation in the blood vessels, and the role of what we call insulin resistance in the development of heart disease. As you know, I've been obsessing and focusing a lot on my health and fitness these last few months, and what I'm eating is a huge part of my journey, obviously. So much of changing our fitness and our body composition and our health is about nutrition. And sometimes it can be a real challenge to make sure I'm getting nourishing meals while I'm busy with work and home and all the stuff. And I'm really excited to share that I've recently found a solution that fits my dietary needs and preferences that helps me stay on track without compromising my progress towards my health goals. Factor is the company and they make absolutely delicious, fresh, never frozen, ready to eat meals that meet all my needs and keep me satiated throughout the day. They have a ton of options like keto, vegan, vegetarian, and others mixing protein and calorie goals. So whatever is right for you. One of the best parts is you can mix and match meals as you desire, which is perfect. Factor uses pasture-raised, grass-fed ingredients that are free of gluten, antibiotics, hormones, refined sugars, soy, preservatives, and GMOs. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options, and it's less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved It's flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need. You can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, and I know you'll love them just as much as I do, so give it a try. Head to factormeals.com slash markgroves50 and use the code markgroves50 to get 50% off. 50% off. That's code markgroves50 at factormeals.com slash markgroves50 to get 50% off. So inflammation, how does one uh, calculate that? Like when you think in the blood vessel? Yeah. So, you know, there are a number of blood tests that we can look at to measure inflammation. I would say the most commonly used one and probably, you know, the best understood one is what we call CRP, C-reactive mm -hmm. protein. And I believe that that should be, you know, part of everyone's basic uh, blood work. And it's usually not, unfortunately. Most doctors don't check it routinely. Uh, but numerous studies have now shown that CRP, C-reactive protein, and other inflammation markers that you can look at are significantly better predictors of heart disease risk than LDL cholesterol. Interesting. And for uh, cholesterol, because I think for m most people listening, they'll have they'll be familiar with getting a cholesterol. Uh, a cholesterol uh, test and then the doctor will say you have a high LDL or high total cholesterol. Can you walk us through what that might look like? So most people the basic cholesterol panel that they're going to get from their physicians uh, is going to have four or five different numbers on it. really depends which lab you go to, where you are. But it's going to have your total cholesterol. It's going to have um, LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoproteins. What Many doctors are going to call bad cholesterol, and, and that's a horrible term. <laughs> um, it's going to have your HDL cholesterol, uh, high-density lipoproteins, and many doctors are going to call that good cholesterol, and again, not a great term to use. And then we're going to have your triglycerides. Um, and understand that, you know, all of those numbers are looking at the amount of cholesterol in your bloodstream. They're not looking really at the quality of the cholesterol. And that's what I now try and refocus people on. 
Because it's not that cholesterol is meaningless. It's not that cholesterol doesn't play any role in the, the process of heart disease. Uh, but the amount of cholesterol really isn't the driving factor. It's going to be the quality of your cholesterol. It's going to be the environment that cholesterol is in. So to take a step back, we have to understand that cholesterol is a vital substance to not only human life, but all life. Um, every, you know, species on this planet has cholesterol and uses it for a number of vital functions. Uh, cholesterol makes up the, the structure of our cells. We literally can't exist without it. Mm. Cholesterol is also a precursor molecule for so many of the vital hormones in our body. These are things like our sex hormones, like testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. These are things like cortisol, which is a stress hormone, uh, and even something like vitamin D, which is actually a what we call a pro-hormone. Um, these are all made by our body from cholesterol. So we can't live without cholesterol. And the concept that we should be trying to eradicate this substance from our body, essentially, mm. again, really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but that's the <clears throat> pathway that, you know, so many doctors think along that, you know, if we just get rid of all the cholesterol, everything's going to be fine. So when people are getting their cholesterol measured, uh, they should have it broken down by the quality. Yeah. And to really understand the quality of your cholesterol, you probably need some more advanced testing than most doctors do. So your basic lipid panel, we can use that to kind of get some information about the quality of your cholesterol. And specifically, I encourage people to look at the ratio between their triglycerides and their HDL cholesterol. Um, you want that ratio and this needs to be done, importantly, in U.S. units, milligrams per deciliter. So if you're working in millimole, you convert both to mi milligrams per deciliter, and then you divide your triglycerides by your HDL cholesterol. And a useful marker for that is we want that to be ideally under one and a half. Under two is pretty good. And the reason that that starts to tell you about the quality of your cholesterol is we know that as people become insulin resistant and as they develop more inflammation, it drives our triglycerides up and it drives our HDL mm. down. Uh, so the higher that ratio is, the more likely it is that you are, you are insulin resistant, you do have inflammation, and this is now the setting that cholesterol becomes problematic. Because what that implies mm -hmm. is that there's going to be damage to your blood vessels. And ultimately, cholesterol, one of the many vital purposes it serves in our body, is it's a repair mechanism. When the blood vessel wall gets damaged, the cholesterol gets sent to kind of patch the wall up. If you keep damaging the blood vessel and you keep putting more and more of this patch material there, essentially, mm -hmm. that's where we start to get the problem. That's where the atherosclerosis, these plaques that can block up the arteries, start to form. They're being built up from the inflammation, the damage, and then the circulating cholesterol Correct. that attaches to try to repair it, but then builds up, uh, uh, and I guess leads to what they call an occlusion. Yeah, right. so what can happen over time is um, one of two things happens. You know, besides um, 
when that exposed damaged blood vessel wall, cholesterol will come in and you'll also get blood clotting uh, occurring at that site. And so um, over time, that can either lead to a gradual buildup of uh, these blockages and leading to narrowing of the blood vessel, what we call stenosis, Mm -hmm. and kind of choking off the blood supply to the heart muscle itself, or acutely, quickly, a blood vessel can get blocked up because a blood clot starts to form essentially a piece of that clot and this atherosclerotic material can break off and it can include a blood vessel suddenly and this is what we call a heart attack. Mm. Uh, So um, that's why the problem occurs. And again, what happened was we looked at these atherosclerotic plaques under the microscope. We saw there was cholesterol there and we said, oh, well, the cholesterol must be the problem. Let's try and get rid of the cholesterol. And what we really should have done is said, why did the blood vessel wall damage in the first place? And let's attack that problem. And again, as we go through the scientific evidence, we see that the reason that the blood vessel wall gets damaged, if we can head off that problem, that's a much more powerful way to uh, prevent heart disease than trying to lower the cholesterol. And you're saying that insulin is ultimately the thing we want to look at. So, yeah, can you explain more about that? Definitely. So insulin resistance, again, is one of these underlying biochemical processes that we should be focused on because that is a major contributor to this inflammation that is damaging the blood vessel. Insulin resistance also damages the cholesterol molecules themselves, with the, which leads to issue. So insulin is one of the master hormones in our body. Many people will be familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And again, it does lots of things, but one of the most important things it does is helps to regulate our blood sugar levels. Too much sugar in the blood is toxic. We know this. It damages the blood vessels. It causes inflammation. uh, It has lots of deleterious effects. So our body works very hard by using primarily insulin to keep the level of sugar in our bloodstream under control. Over time, if there's too much demand for insulin, we're putting too much sugar into the blood to start with. The cells themselves... And this occurs in the liver, it occurs in the muscle, and it occurs in our fat cells. Uh, They stop responding to the insulin. And the blood, the sugar then can accumulate in our blood. And again, this then causes damage in the blood vessels. Um, People are going to be very familiar with this. This is what we know as diabetes. Diabetes is when too much sugar accumulates in the bloodstream. And type 2 diabetes, the more common form of it is when that occurs because the body has stopped responding to insulin. So this is opposed to type 1 diabetes, um, which occurs because the body can't make insulin. So insulin resistance is the underlying process that really drives heart disease. And again, when we look at the the scientific studies on all of this, what we see is that almost every patient who develops heart disease has insulin resistance. Wow. When you know how to check for it, the statistics show it's well over 90%. And that's 
you know, contrasted by cholesterol. And depending on the study that you look at, uh, patients showing up with heart attacks, for instance, half of them show up with normal levels of LDL cholesterol. So, it, like I said earlier, it's not that cholesterol is meaningless. It's just that insulin resistance turns out to be so much more powerful of a metric. And that's why I think that's what we should be focused on. And when you're focused on insulin resistance, it leads you down a whole different paradigm of how to treat and prevent this problem. Yeah, because if you have, so if I hear what you're saying correctly, we have the cultural momentum and the of one in the medical community that cholesterol causes heart disease, treat cholesterol. Then we have the food industry that is responding to that or participating with that, saying fat, okay, let's get rid of fat out of food in order to keep food tasting good. Let's put a bunch of sugar in there. And I'm sure the sugar producers were not upset about this decision. And so we are then consuming this food unknowingly thinking, oh, I'm not going to get heart disease because my doctor told me and the news tells me and the ads tell me I, I, I'll i just eat fat-free food. I'll stop eating egg yolks. I won't eat bacon anymore. All the beef, you know, I won't eat any of these things, which you see that narrative a lot now about meat. Oh my God, let's we'll get into that. But okay, so then culturally we're eating this highly processed food with lots of sugar. There's tons of sugar circulating in our blood. The insulin eventually is like, well, this this isn't going to work, and so the you were saying the muscles and the cells they the cells in different parts of our body become resistant to the insulin. They stop responding to it, and so the accumulation of the sugar then increases inflammation in the body. Is this, I know this is a very elementary attempt at trying to understand, but is it something like that? Yeah, no, that's basically <laughs> it. And and again, I do try and uh, explain, you know, keep this somewhat simple because yeah. you can go very deep uh, into the science. It's very complex. Yeah. The human body is very complex. And again, that's uh, a simple thing that I kind of think about and point to these days that, you know, the 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 thinking that we can reduce heart disease down to one number on one blood test you know again that was very kind of erroneous thinking very faulty <laughs> thinking and it, it it's really not that simple uh we've created a perfect storm yeah. like you said that's what it sounds you know? like and you know some people will say you know we'll we'll say maybe that was intentional you know conspiracy theory yeah I, I don't know, you know, but the bottom line is we just have a perfect storm these days because the food industry, the pharmaceutical industry have aligned uh, behind this messaging, uh, this cholesterol centric, you know, uh, food fat, you know, saturated fat in the diet uh, messaging. And the food industry says, okay, no problem. We're happy to take out the saturated fat, sell you processed food that is more profitable for us, keeps people hungry, makes people eat more, and looks great from their standpoint. And then the pharmaceutical industry will come in behind that and say, well, don't even worry about really what you're eating because, you know, we have the answer. We'll, we'll, we'll give you medications yeah. and it will save you. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, it ends up with a lot of sick people. And so now the healthcare industry is happy too because yeah. they have all these sick people to take care of. Uh, and again, 
Um, what I now say is, you know, that whole environment, that whole system, it's working great for everyone except the patient. Right. Um, right. And, you know, that's what we really <laughs> need to refocus on. How can we put the patient back at the center? How can we keep people from being sick in the first place? Because another realization I came to was no matter how good a heart surgeon I might be, no matter how good all the heart surgeons, all the other physicians out there might be, you're never as good after you've had the heart surgery as you would have been if you didn't need the heart surgery mm -hmm. in the first place. So when you look at your own journey, because this really was born from your own experience of going on, you know, going gluten free and then experiencing the benefits of that and then going keto. Can you speak more to, because I'm sure for people listening, they're like, oh my God, do I do paleo, keto, vegan, carnivore? So maybe we can walk through the, the subtle differences between some of those, but also some of the benefits that you see based on what maybe someone is navigating. Yeah, definitely so. And there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of options. Um, you know, like you said, the first step is getting people to think about the food that we're eating. And mm -hmm. I do think that is the most important first step. Become intentional about what you're eating. Uh, too much, too many of us go through life just eating what's in front of us and mm -hmm. not really thinking about you know, what are we eating here? Uh, and once you start thinking about the food that you're eating, the overarching principle becomes eat real food. I tell people, you know, eat the things that grow in the ground and eat the things that eat the things that grow in the ground. <laughs> that's, great. Uh, that's really the simple uh, rubric that I use. Uh, so just eat real food. You should be able to look at what you're eating and know what it is. It shouldn't have this long list of ingredients. It shouldn't have all these, you know, chemical names and, pro, you know, processed stuff in it. Uh, once you've started eating real food, like you said, you can be vegan, you can be carnivore, you can be paleo, lots of options in between. And, you know, on some level, I think most of those things will work as long as you're eating real food. Um I can look at something like a vegan, you know, plant-based diet, and I can say, okay, well, Oreos are vegan. And so if you're eating a vegan diet that's still heavily processed, it's not going to do you any good. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I look at the keto community today, and I see the same warning signs. Just because the box of processed stuff says keto on it doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial for your health. And just because they've maybe taken some of the carbohydrates out or substituted with some, you know, what's considered to be low carbohydrate, uh, you know, flour substitute, uh, or just because it says gluten free, you know, and they've done the same thing, again, doesn't mean that that is whole real food that's really uh -huh. benefiting your health. So ultimately, I tell people first and foremost, uh, we should be eating whole real food. The balance between how much meat you want to eat, how much veg, you know, vegetable and fruit you want to eat, I think that's going to depend on your situation, on your preferences. Um, I do have a strong, um, uh, I do strongly advocate for people to be incorporating animal proteins into their diet. I think they do provide unique benefits to humans. And quite frankly, it's the food that humans have been eating for our entire existence as human beings. Uh, so we shouldn't fear 
animal protein. This anti-meat messaging is very misguided and is very detrimental to people's health because meat is the most nutrient-dense food that humans can eat. It is the optimal food for humans to eat. Our digestive systems are designed to extract nutrients from meat. They have a harder time extracting nutrients from plant products. Uh, so mm. I am an advocate for an animal protein heavy dietary approach. But, you know, I understand that that may not work for some people for various reasons. And I can work with a plant-based uh, whole real food diet. Uh, I just don't consider it to be optimal. Yeah, when you look at someone who has, let's say, the bad type of cholesterol elevated, has uh, pre-diabetes, their insulin resistance, you're starting to see it creep. Um, would that be measured A1C? Uh, A1C is a good way to measure it, yep. So let's say there you're, or someone listening is going through something like that. What would be the first recommendations you'd make for someone like that? Yeah, so this is important to understand. When you are insulin resistant, and even better than measuring your A1C is going to be measuring your fasting insulin level, another test that m many doctors don't get. Uh, but once you start that insulin resistance process, your body has become intolerant of carbohydrates. It can't process carbohydrates well, and it really doesn't matter all that much whether the carbohydrates are coming from the, you know, bag of pretzels or a piece of fruit. Um, oh, interesting. They're, they're all carbohydrates. Uh, so once you are insulin resistant, the best way to manage that, the best way to reverse it, and the good news is it is reversible, is to lower your carbohydrate intake. Now, how low do you need to go? That's going to depend on your situation. It's going to depend how insulin resistant you are, how active you are, what, you know, your muscle mass is like. Uh, you know, it's hard to give a blanket recommendation, mm -hmm. but in general, I say the lower the better. And uh, once you are insulin resistant, the focus should turn to what we now call therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. Interesting. Like Bringing that. in less carbohydrate, uh, lowering your body's demand to produce insulin, and that insulin resistance will start to reverse. Um, I am a big fan of continuous glucose monitors. I think they're great tools uh, for people to use to get the feedback as to whether or not they're exceeding their body's capacity for carbohydrates. Uh, that's, you know... You put a continuous glucose monitor on someone, and for anyone who's not familiar with a continuous glucose monitor, it's a little device that goes on your arm or on your abdomen. You wear it typically for 10 to 14 days, and you know it's going to be connected to uh, your smartphone, to an app, and you're going to see what your blood sugar is doing every moment of the day. And when you eat certain foods, you're going to see how your body responds. And if your blood sugar is going up and it's staying elevated for extended periods of time, that means that you are not processing that food well. And what we invariably see is the more carbohydrates you eat, the more insulin resistant you are, the worse those blood sugar uh, values are going to be. 
So you wear that monitor so you can see how your blood sugar is impacted by the food. Is there a, cause I've heard that the order of which you eat food can be beneficial for preventing spikes. Yeah. So, um, there are a number of kind of, uh, hacks that you can use. And yeah, we've now shown that if you eat protein and fat prior to eating the carbohydrates, uh, you typically are going to see less of a response to that carbohydrate than if you eat the carbohydrate first, or certainly if you eat, you know, the carbohydrate alone, or, you know, it's the primary component of the meal that you're eating. Uh, activity can have uh, positive effects when it comes to carbohydrates. So if you get uh, activity before and or after you eat the carbohydrate, you can oftentimes blunt uh, that response to the carbohydrate. But ultimately, the most powerful thing we can do is stop eating the carbohydrates uh, and especially the highly processed carbohydrates to lower the, the demand on our bodies uh, for insulin. Yeah, because when I think about someone uh, who is type 2 diabetic, uh, do they often even know, because what you said is like, you can reverse these, I would imagine not, is it 100% of the time or like, maybe that's an overpromise? Yeah, but, I think. But a high percentage? A high percentage of type 2 diabetes can be reversed. Uh, and again, this is a controversial concept within the medical system. The underlying belief in the medical system is type 2 diabetes is a chronic and progressive disease. And the only thing we can do is manage it. Try and keep people's blood sugars under control, usually with medications. There'll be some dietary recommendations. Um, but what we are now demonstrating, and um, you know, we now have large published series on this, is that type 2 diabetes is reversible. And a low-carbohydrate diet, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction is the most effective intervention at reversing type 2 diabetes. Wow. And for someone listening, like who's been told by their doctor, like, oh, we'll just take care of this. And now with uh, Ozempic, mm -hmm. too, which that seems to be like a hot commodity. Yep. You know, I've, I've, I've only seen like people talking about it being used with celebrities using it to lose weight. Actually, I was uh, at the airport a couple weeks ago and a couple people sitting beside me were talking about how they might go on Ozempic while they were drinking a Coke. You know, and I'm just like, man, it's so interesting how we want to skip the struggle. Like we want to skip the 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 work that goes in. Much like I think pharma has taught us, is like as you said, it doesn't matter what you eat. Don't worry, we got you. With Ozempic, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, not a fan uh, of the GLP-1 uh, agonists. Uh, so, you know, again, um, they are effective drugs for controlling blood sugar in diabetics. I would put forward that we would be better off with the dietary approach than the medications. But, you know, I'm not going to deny that the medications are effective at controlling blood yeah. sugar. And the question becomes, at what cost? Right. And that becomes an especially important question when we've now, you know, greatly expanded their use for uh, treating obesity and helping with weight loss. And again, you do see some uh, 
we see positive data when it comes to weight loss with these medications, but the question becomes at what cost? And we're now starting to see more and more data really going into, you know, what type of weight are people losing? Uh, are they losing the fat or are they losing muscle? And it turns out that with these GLP-1 agonist medications, people seem to be losing a disproportionate amount of muscle mass. Interesting. Very interesting and very concerning because we know that maintaining muscle mass as we age is the best predictor of not only how long you'll live, but your quality of life, Mm -hmm. both health span and lifespan. So I really fear that we're setting people up for long-term problems if, you know, yes, you've lost a bunch of weight, but you did it by losing all of your muscle mass, uh, that's going to be a big problem down the line. And then we have the other concerns about, you know, sustainability. What happens when you come off the medication? And again, the data is clearly showing that people, like we see with other you know, with diets, uh, people tend to gain back the weight and more over time. And even if you stay on the medication long term, we're seeing significant weight regain in people. Even taking, on it. Even on it. Yeah. Wow. You know, we now have studies looking out beyond a year on these medications, and we see that there's significant weight regain even while you're continuing to take the medication. So I don't think they're a good long term approach. They might be useful. As people are starting to change, and if they're combined with the dietary changes, something like therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, there might be a role there. Now, I would put forward that, you know, most people, when they're given the proper support, can do it without these medications. So, you know, why do we want to put people on, uh, you know, very expensive medications that have these side effects that are concerning, uh, that are setting them up for longer-term metabolic issues that I think are going to be very problematic. Yeah, because my understanding is it uh, all slows down peristalsis. So there's been some issue with uh, like gut, like gut blockages. Is that right? Yeah. Bow- so bowel obstruction. Yeah, and, and you know, to be fair, this is a small percentage of people, but it is a real phenomena with these medications that they can develop. Uh, acute blockages in the intestine uh, or longer term, what we're starting to see is uh, the loss of basically stomach uh, peristalsis. Those are the contractions that kind of move food throughout the intestinal tract. Uh, There does seem to be some concern that people on these medications longer term, um, that gets damaged irreversibly. So even when they come off the medication, they're still having these long lasting issues. Wow. So when, so if I'm someone who decides to go on a ketogenic diet, why, and I did recently, about four months ago, and I've lost probably about 26 pounds on it, feel great. I'm curious, why do people lose weight on ketosis, like in ketosis? And is the benefit in your blood chemistry uh, from the weight loss and the dietary, like which part is weight loss that improves things like insulin versus just the weight, not eating carbohydrates, or is it a symbiotic relationship? Yeah, great questions. Um, there is a symbiotic relationship, but we do see changes in the blood chemistry when you're looking at something like insulin level seems to occur even before significant weight loss. And some people going on these dietary approaches, you know, don't get 
the impressive weight loss, but they get impressive changes in their blood work, in their metabolic numbers. Um, Understand another basic uh, perhaps misconception out there is that you don't need to be overweight to be insulin resistant. Mm. Uh, And that's another important point. And, you know, we oftentimes assume that obesity and insulin resistance are the same and they always go together. Uh, But in fact, we see plenty of people who are not obese. They are insulin resistant. And a lot of those people end up on my operating table, you know, and everyone's always surprised. And they're like, well, you know, only obese people develop heart disease and need, you know, heart surgery, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, And, you know, even to the point that you'll see high level athletes that develop heart disease and everyone's always confused and they're saying, well, they look great and they're active and how do they develop heart disease? And those people are insulin resistant. Oftentimes, you know, a lot of athletes fuel their athletic pursuits with carbohydrates, with these processed foods. And so they're not getting obese because of their high level of activity, but they're developing insulin resistance and they can be getting heart disease. Um, So very important to check for insulin resistance. Um, I would also extend that to say very important to check for early warning signs when it comes to heart disease. And I'm a big advocate for another very underutilized test. It's called a coronary artery calcium scan. This is a simple uh, non-invasive CAT scan that can be done that can show us heart disease at its early stages. And that gives us a chance to intervene and stop the progression of that process. At that point, would the intervention be dietary? Like saying, hey, let's go ketogenic or something like that? Again, I believe that first and foremost, it should be dietary. Uh, Many doctors will utilize that as an opportunity to, you know, go down the drug, uh, the pharma-based preventative approach. But um, I, you know, again, I'm a strong advocate for if you develop, if you detect early signs of heart disease, um, it's an indicator that you're probably insulin resistant or there's some other inflammatory process going on in your body that's driving that damage to the blood vessel wall, and let's figure out what it is and how to reverse it so that process doesn't continue. Can you reverse atherosclerosis? So again, another controversial uh, topic. Uh, I have seen patients of mine now that have lowered their coronary artery calcium scores are seeing plaque reversal. Um, Most people you know, aren't going to go from moderate to high levels of plaque to no plaque. Uh, And most important is stopping the progression. Because whatever level of plaque that you might be at today, uh, if you're not to the point that you're having symptoms, if you haven't had a heart attack, um, if that blockage in the blood vessel isn't yet significant enough to be impairing blood flow, as long as we stop it from getting worse, you should be fine in the long run. If we get some reversal, great, uh, but let's just stop it from getting worse is usually my goal with working with patients these days. I'm sure for a lot of people listening, they're either on a statin, they've heard about statins, their doctors offered them a statin. What are your thoughts on statins? Yeah, so um, like uh, we've talked about in a couple of different contexts during the conversation, I don't think the pharmaceutical first approach is the best way to go. I want people to... um, 
work with your practitioners to understand, uh, first of all, cholesterol quality versus cholesterol quantity. And then, you know, where do you stand from a heart disease perspective? Do you have plaque in your arteries or not? That's where the coronary artery calcium scan becomes so powerful. Uh, it's a very complex question. Yeah. You really need a practitioner who understands cholesterol, lipids, what we call lipidology, uh, to a deeper level than just looking at one number on your blood panel and making um, a fairly important decision. Because if you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, and you're being recommended to go on these medications, um, you're going to be on these medications now for 30 or 40 years. Right. Uh, that's going to have a major impact. Uh, and there are some things that we're starting to understand about the long-term effects of being on these medications um, that are problematic and are concerning. Uh, so, you know, it's not a simple question. I'm not here just to tell everyone you should never take a statin. Um, I'm also not a fan of our current approach, which is kind of, well, everyone, default yeah. is everyone should take a statin. Uh, find a good clinician to work with who really understands this issue and figure out, you know, for you, are these medications the right option or not? But while you're doing that, also be thinking about, you know, what other changes can I be making to improve my cardiovascular health, the foods that we eat, the activities that we do, uh, the impact of things like sleep and stress on our cardiovascular health and our health in general. Because cholesterol is such an important aspect of our biology and different physiological processes, I'm curious, what are some of the long-term impacts of reducing it to like being on a statin that you're saying can be cor correlated? Yeah, so the two most concerning uh, long-term effects of being on statins that I see are number one, uh, statins over the long-term actually worsen insulin resistance. And we're... Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's a big wow. Because when you recognize that insulin resistance is a much bigger risk factor for heart disease, even if we accept... Uh, at face value that lowering cholesterol is going to be benefit in uh, the management of heart disease. If we're worsening insulin resistance over the long term, how that's much of that effect are we undoing? Uh, so that's one piece of data which is pretty consistent and concerning that long-term use of statins worsens insulin sensitivity, worsens insulin resistance. Um, the second uh, probably most common concern that I hear around statins and that I do think is a valid concern is around uh, cognitive effects, um, development of uh, dementia, uh, seems to be increased in people that are on statins long term. And again, this, there are studies that contradict this. There's some mixed understanding of this. It's something we're still unwrapping. Uh, but there was a very uh, concerning uh, study uh, that was published where they took a bunch of, I believe it was around 50 patients who were on statins and had developed cognitive decline, were starting to show signs of dementia. They took them off the statins and they saw improvement in their cognition. And then they put the people back on statins and saw that their cognition declined again. Uh, so, you know, Damn. small study, uh, but concerning. 
And uh, like I said, I don't think we fully understand the implications of being on these medications for decades. Uh, And that, again, becomes my concern with this sort of medication-first approach that uh, when we're recommending these to younger and younger people, what are the effects going to be of being on these medications for, you know, 40, 50 years? Wow. I never thought that there would be that much of a correlation, like take them off, they improve, put them back on, they decline again. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like I said, one study, small number of patients, but yeah. it's it's concerning. If I was on a statin, it would make me think. I'm curious then if someone is on a statin and they are thinking, okay, well, this is all interesting information. Where can they find out more? And what would it be like to to maybe desire to come off it? Yeah, so I think, like I said, you have to have an approach. I don't yeah. want people to just say, well, I'm going to ignore cholesterol. I'm going to take stop taking my yeah, statin and, uh, you know, everything's going to be fine. So, you know, what are the alternatives? And like I said, focusing on inflammation, focusing on insulin resistance, making sure those are under control so that if you do have an elevated blood cholesterol level in that setting – it may not be problematic anymore. That is the approach that um, I take with my patients. And you've really got to find a good practitioner that understands this. I think there are a lot of good resources out there now, given the giving the sort of alternative perspective on uh, cholesterol-lowering medications and whether or not they may be beneficial. I also want people to recognize that there are non-statin approaches non-statin pharmaceuticals now that can lower cholesterol. So even if we say, okay, maybe I do need to lower my cholesterol level, um, is the statin the best way to do it today? I'm not sure that that's really, uh, you know, the best answer if you do want to lower your cholesterol level. Uh, And like I said, very complex. Find a good practitioner to work with uh, is really my recommendation to people that are struggling with this issue. Okay, so for people listening, I'm sure there's a lot of questions about carnivore because carnivore is so hot right now. It seems like everybody is talking about it. What are the benefits versus, because when I, this was hard for me, two things have been hard for me. One, the programming is so hard in my brain that fat causes heart disease that when I eat, you know, bacon or a ribeye, there's still a part of my mind that is like, this causes heart, this isn't good for you. Meanwhile, it tastes so, so delicious. So there's that aspect of my mentality. But also when I think of carnivore, I'm like, what about vegetables? Like, I, don't I need salad and things like that? Like, if I'm not getting that, then am I, am I not getting the nutrients I need? Do you know what I mean? Because salad is kind of, especially with the Blue Zone documentary, yep. that is like vegan everything, vegetarian. So maybe we can go into that right after, but... The difference between keto and carnivore and why you believe carnivore can and where it might be beneficial for people. Yeah, so uh, and you can imagine being a uh, heart surgeon who uh, was considering going carnivore as well and having all the same Programming right. to overcome. Yeah, yours is deeper than mine. Yeah, okay, okay. very much. Oh, wait, so. I was in pharma. Never mind. <laughs> so, um, as I said, you know, animal proteins, meat is the food that human beings have evolved on. 
And the evidence really shows us that for the vast majority of our existence as human beings up until about probably 10,000 years ago, we were primarily carnivorous. So the first thing people need to understand is whatever they've heard about red meat being harmful to their health, um, it's simply not true. Um, and we hear about it for heart disease. We hear about it for cancer. Um, neither of them holds up under you know, good scientific scrutiny. I want people to understand it is not only okay, but it is beneficial to them to be eating red meat. Um, the carnivore diet, I think, becomes the ultimate sort of elimination diet. Because as I said, you know, if, if you've developed heart disease, mm -hmm. um, if you've developed insulin resistance, uh, something that you're eating is not agreeing with your body, basically. Uh, there's inflammation being caused, and we need to figure out what that is. And the best way, I think, to do that is to eliminate anything that could be causing the inflammation. And, you know, an elimination diet, a carnivore diet, is a very powerful tool to do that. Now, whether or not you need to do that for the rest of your life again, is going to depend on your situation. There are some people who, you know, a fairly strict carnivore diet is necessary for them to be in optimal health. For most of us, it doesn't have to be a strict carnivore diet. It's more of an animal-based approach uh, you'll hear it referred to as. And that falls, you know, that ends up being a form of a ketogenic diet. Um, but, you know, they're not exactly the same thing. And I just have found over and over with patients, um, even with my own experiences, that carnivore diet is the most powerful way to eliminate inflammation. So for me, um, I was many years into doing low-carb ketogenic diets. And quite frankly, I was feeling pretty good. You mm -hmm. know, I'd lost the weight, my blood markers, everything looked great. Uh, and I kind of heard about this carnivore diet. And I said, let me give it a try, you know, and I was eating very low levels of carbohydrate at that point, under 20 grams a day. And I went to a carnivore diet. And I noticed that I felt even better. Uh, for me, specifically, I had plantar fasciitis in my right foot that I could not get rid of. I'd done all the exercises, I had stopped running, I had, you know, all the things that we could try, I could try, it wasn't going away. Uh, my third day on carnivore, I got out of bed and for the first time in years, uh, when I put my right foot down on the ground, it didn't hurt. And the inflammation finally went away. And early on, if I started to stray a little bit, you know, had something with, uh, you know, maybe it was a little bit of sugar or maybe it was just even uh, some of these uh, vegetable and seed oils, which I now come to recognize as an important uh, player in all of this, um, I would start to feel the inflammation in my right foot again. Wow. Uh, you were that attuned to the inflammation I in was, your body. For whatever reason, that's where the kind of focus of inflammation was wow. in my body. Uh, for many other people, it ends up being gut issues or something else. Yeah. Uh, but I find that doing carnivores and elimination diet gives people a good baseline for them to kind of really understand how good they feel, uh, you know, what normal is supposed to feel like, which is, again, another problem that we have. We've normalized not 
feeling good. Yeah. So many of us are like, oh, you know, I have these aches and pains and it's just I'm getting older and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, but the reality is, is that you can do something about it. And I hear over and over again from people who do do carnivore diets, you know, just how amazing they feel, how it kind of turns the clock back 10, 20 years. Uh, and um, so most people, once they experience that, they want to keep experiencing right. that. And they <laughs> yeah. tend to stick with the at least the carnivore-based approach. Like I said, it may not have to be a strict carnivore diet for everyone, but the the meat-based approach, animal protein-heavy approach, um, I do believe allows most people to find what's optimal for them. Yeah, I've heard some benefit in autoimmune. Is that... Yeah, autoimmune ends up being a very powerful area where carnivore... Um, can be used. Uh, so these are going to be things like uh, rheumatoid arthritis is a very common one. Many of the inflammatory bowel disorders uh, are other common uh, autoimmune presentations. Uh, thyroid disease oftentimes can be autoimmune in nature. And carnivore can be especially powerful. Um, it's being increasingly recognized uh, that the human digestive system uh, isn't optimized for plant products. And plants uh, have these defense systems, these defense mechanisms uh, that can be various, you know, proteins and various uh, chemicals that are in the plant that basically is trying to discourage predators like humans or animals from eating the plant. That's how the plant survives. The plant can't run away like animals can. So they use these defense mechanisms and our bodies, specifically our uh, digestive tracts, may not react well to those and that can be promoting autoimmune disease. So over and over now you hear within the carnivore community, um, people with these long-standing advanced autoimmune disorders that are healed with a carnivore diet. Wow, that's wild. I'm curious for people who have watched let's the blue zone movie or are getting inundated with a lot of marketing about vegetables versus meat and climate change and all the narratives. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the way that they portrayed vegetarian or vegan lifestyle in, in well, not just in the media, but in things like the blue zones. And if you want to live to a hundred. Yeah. So we need to recognize that this is mostly marketing now. Uh, as I said, if you're eliminating processed food, you're going to improve your health. So if you're taking a non-processed plant-based approach, that is certainly going to be better than yeah. a Western diet. And seed oils. I mean, yeah, please talk yeah, about Yeah, seed that. oils are another yeah. component we'll have to get into. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in general, you know, all of the evidence for uh, plant-based approach uh, being beneficial for our health are all in the context of of comparing it to a Western diet. Yeah. And I don't deny, you know, and uh, like I said, I, I work with people on plant-based diets and, and they improve their health. Uh, but there are certain um, limitations of a plant-based approach that we need to acknowledge. Uh, you can't get all of the essential nutrients that you need from plants alone. And again, the vegan advocates don't deny this. They just say, take your supplements. And like I said, some people make that choice. I just don't think it's optimal. Um, the 
the the real question becomes, as you said earlier, you know, we've all heard, well, you need to eat your, you know, vegetables. Uh, are vegetables actually essential to human life? And the answer is no, they're not. We can get every nutrient uh, that we need from animal products alone. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, the sort of uh, design of the system, you could say, is the animals are better able to extract the nutrients from the plants, um, especially ruminant animals, multiple stomachs. Uh, they are able to optimally extract the nutrients from the plants. Those nutrients end up in their meat. And then we as human beings eat the meat to get those nutrients. Mm. Uh, and like I said, I believe that that is really the optimal way to do this. Now, in order to accept that, again, you have to kind of circle back to what's the main argument against a plant-based, I'm sorry, a meat-based carnivore diet, uh, ketogenic diets. The main objection you'll hear is going back to this cholesterol issue. Right. So that's why the two are kind of so intimately related. And quite frankly, that's now what I spend the vast majority of my time working <laughs> yeah. on is dispelling this cholesterol uh, misconception, uh, working with people to help them understand uh, that it is okay to adopt a, you know, meat-based approach. And if you see your cholesterol going up, and again, understand that's inconsistent. Some people don't. But if you do, it may not be a bad thing. Uh, and that's where we really need to get into the deeper understanding, the deeper testing around cholesterol quality, uh, using things like a coronary artery calcium scan to determine, you know, are you accumulating more plaque while you're doing this dietary approach or not? And I now have a large uh, cadre of patients in my practice who are on, you know, ketogenic carnivore diets, and they're seeing, despite having elevated LDL cholesterol levels, their plaque is not progressing, and in some cases it's reversing, uh, or they're never developing it in the first place. Wow. And um, that, again, kind of dispels this whole cholesterol-based understanding of heart disease. Yeah, just one of those patients disproves that theory. It should. Um, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> should, again, should. in medicine, we tend to, uh, you know, just ignore the outliers, you know, the black sheep uh, or the black swans, uh, you know, and we ignore those. Uh, but again, you know, if you're really thinking about this mechanistically and if high cholesterol is the cause of heart disease, well, that really should mean that the vast majority of people with high cholesterol shouldn't have, you know, uh, should be developing heart disease uh, at accelerated rates. And we're now seeing more and more evidence um, that's dispelling that. And I admit we don't have um, as much of the scientific evidence in this area as we want, as we should. Uh, it's not something that people have really had an interest in studying. Uh but thankfully, there are studies underway that are helping us to gather the evidence. And we just see more and more of these so-called N equals one, uh, you know, uh, experiments, case reports, people reporting their own results uh, that are showing us that elevated cholesterol is not always problematic. What are your thoughts on seed oils? 
And what are seed oil for people listening? Yeah, so uh, seed oils, or you'll hear, you'll hear them referred to as vegetable oils. These are heavily processed um, oils that are extracted from the seeds of plants. Uh, and these are going to be things like canola oil, sunflower oil, uh, safflower oil, peanut oil. Um, and you'll see them in every in almost every processed food. Uh, mm -hmm. If it comes in a box or a bag uh, and you look <laughs> at that ingredient list, there's a very good chance you're going to find seed oils. It's wild to me now that I look for it, how it's in everything. Yep. I even, when I was at Whole Foods, I was buying some cashews and I was buying their, like, I forget the brand, but it was like, I think they're 365 or whatever the brand is. And I was looking at the thing and I'm like, why did you put sunflower oil in this? They put it in everything. Yeah. In a really lot of the do. keto, like processed A lot of the keto stuff. products, exactly. Canola. I, I went to this restaurant where I was like, hey, look, I know there's a lot of maintenance. I'm allergic to seed oils. Can you just let me know what I can eat? She, They crossed out almost everything other than the steak, you know? And I was like, man, it's amazing they sneak it into everything. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be in all your sauces, your dressings, you know, people, again, going back to the healthy salad that they think they're eating. And yeah, maybe the lettuce and the tomato, you know, is not that problematic, but there's a good chance that the dressing that you've now put on it is loaded in seed oils, probably has added sugar, and is negating any positive effect that may have come from those vegetables in the first place. Um, so, you know, again, seed oils are a new introduction into our food environment. You know, yeah. they only really came about within the past 100 to 150 years uh, that they were put into wide usage. And our bodies simply don't know what to do with these. We didn't evolve eating them. Uh, they literally damage the cellular machinery, uh, what we call the mitochondria, uh, which are kind of the power plants of our cells. And because these oils are close to the natural fats that occur in animals and plant products. Um, our body tries to use them, but it really can't use them effectively. And it kind of gums up the machinery and causes inflammation, very pro-inflammatory, uh, and worsens this problem that they were supposed to solve in the first place. Uh, and that's what becomes so interesting because when you look again at the scientific studies that were done on these uh seed oils, these seed and vegetable oils, you find um, that some studies show a small reduction in cardiovascular disease, um, but the all-cause mortality doesn't change. So people end up dying from other things, and they really are not of any benefit to human health. Um, I believe that if you bought you know, seed and vegetable oils to the market today, and we're trying to get these things approved. They never would make it through uh, the safety studies. Um, and uh, they, you know, wouldn't show any benefit to human health. And we would never get these things approved today. But, you know, they were introduced into the food supply, uh, you know, 150 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, they're not acutely toxic. They don't kill you right away when you eat them. And so they, you know, got approved under something called the generally recognized as safe uh, um, standards. Mm. And, um, and then they do 
effectively lower LDL cholesterol. And so they were a perfect kind of, uh, you know, segue into this cholesterol narrative. The food industry loves them because, yeah, A, yeah. they're very profitable, uh, they're cheap to make, uh, and, you know, they uh, they can be – you know, they can basically get people off of eating natural foods because we've been told that the natural foods that we've been eating uh, are not as good for us. And, you know, this, these miracle seed oils are going to be better for our health. So buy our processed food instead. And again, it's uh-huh. when, yeah, I know when you think about it, when you just step back and think about it, uh, one of my favorite sayings to uh, repeat is human beings are the only species that were smart enough to invent their own food and dumb enough to eat it. <laughs> That's too good. Because it, it does seem to be like this constant flaw in, let's call it consciousness, that we have this arrogance that we know better than nature, that we are going to build something better than the brilliance that evolution brings. You know, for every problem on a regenerative farm, there's a solution in nature. You know, and I I feel like we're waking up to it on some level. Like, I feel like the way that COVID was handled really uh, reduced health, but, sorry, reduced trust in public health which has also reduced trust in medicine, which is not great for medicine, but it is making people question other things that they've been taught their whole lives. And this seems like a big one. Because for me, even knowing everything you're saying, reading science on it, reading your book, there still is a deep program that I have to, I'm have. i mindful of when I'm eating a steak. And I think also because there's... I never... I used to trust the media. I used to trust... Uh, medicine. I used to trust all these things. I would say that my trust in pharma and medicine went when I started to research cholesterol and it went down other avenues later. But, and it doesn't mean that I throw it all out, right? Because there's obviously benefit to things like acute care, like cardiac surgery, like antibiotics, all those types of things. But I think what's happened is that it's made it so if something is promoted on the media or promoted in a show like The Blue Zone, I'm like, hmm. What is the agenda here? Because everyone is seeing a lot of things about how meat is causing climate change. And so we need to eat these meat burgers that are made by, somehow just by coincidence, somewhat funded by Bill Gates. So, and which just fuels people's conspiracy theories, right? But I'm also like, man, there's all these things that are connected. And like you said earlier, it all all these systems work together and it sounds like a big conspiracy but regardless of whether it is or isn't we have to deal with what we're handed yeah 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 and that's exactly <laughs> it and uh you know that's sort of i guess the positive message that i keep coming back to is empowering people to understand this and empowering people to take back control of their health you know what i tell people is the good news is you can actually fix this You don't need the medical system to fix it for you. You don't need the government to fix it for you. We each have the power within ourselves to start fixing this problem and just start choosing different foods to eat. Um, You know, ultimately, my hope, and I'm starting to see this, is the medical system will respond. 
the food industry will respond. You know, we see these, uh, you know, Beyond Meat and the Impossible Company, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, their business model is going down in flames, which I think they're is a good thing. Well, right? No, they're not doing well at all. Their stocks have been crashing. Um, you know, uh, one of the... Um, from early on in the COVID pandemic, you know, one of the uh, things that kind of bought me a little bit of joy was, you know, you'd go into the supermarkets that were all depleted, and the only section that was still full was these fake meat products, you know, no <laughs> one was like, buying them, so even hungry. if they, yeah. I won't eat that, though. Exactly. Well, they don't have any nutritional information, do they? Well, they do. Uh, I, I mean, they have the information. I would tell you it's not good, um, you know, and you look at the ingredient list for these things, and they're just pure processed chemical slop. And, you know, for anyone to think that these are good uh, for human beings to eat is it, it's just crazy. Uh, and, and honestly, you know, I, I also find it somewhat, um, I guess, ironic or uh, maybe, you know, it's a positive thing. Most vegans that I know won't eat this stuff, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you're kind of like, well, why should they? You know, if, if you've decided you don't want to eat meat, then why are, you, why are you looking for a thing that looks like meat? Like most of the true plant-based, you know, kind of advocates, uh, plant-based dietary people that I interact with, they don't want to eat the stuff either. It's kind of geared towards that, you know, sort of person who thinks they're being more healthy because they've been told that meat is so bad for him that they're going to eat this fake meat stuff. Uh, but it's really not catching on. I think people do intuitively uh, recognize that. But I am optimistic about the future. I think more and more people are waking up to these facts. Mm -hmm. uh, they're understanding that we need to start looking at the food that we're eating and our its impact on our health. And more and more practitioners are waking up to this as well. You know, I go to the conferences that are centered now on metabolic health, low-carb approaches. I see more and more practitioners of all different specialties that are embracing this approach because doctors – largely recognize that the medical system is failing as well. Um, we are overwhelmed taking care of sick people. We don't have the resources that we need, uh, you know, to support all of this. Um, the financial aspects, you know, we're all well aware of um, not only here in the U.S., but, you know, country uh, by country, you can go and you can see um, the that we just can't afford to take care of all these sick people anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the doctors, the patients, um, the system is starting to recognize this. And I think these somewhat simplistic approaches, I always tell people it's simple, but it's not easy to just eat real food. Uh, but it's a simple concept and people are waking up to it. And that does give me optimism about the future. Yeah, from a relationship perspective, what I find fascinating about, let's say, saying you have a seed uh, seed oil allergy at a restaurant, is that you're willing to let other people think something about you, judge you, whatever it might be, uh, but but you're centering yourself. You know, you were talking about centering the patient again, and I think what's really powerful about reclaiming our health and what I've experienced just in prioritizing what I'm eating is one, I'm seeing a massive, there's an immediate feedback loop that comes from dietary changes and exercise changes. A feedback loop that you don't get from putting a new boundary in your life. Although you are practicing boundaries by the things you're choosing, but what I also notice is it heals codependency because 
where normally I might prioritize other people over me or put their thoughts about my what I'm now doing with my lifestyle. Because usually we hang out with people who eat like us, think like us, smoke like us, whatever it might be. So if we change a behavior, we actually threaten their behavior now. Mm-hmm. And so what I notice from a relational perspective is it really starts to get people to stand in themselves. That now they are a sovereign being who is taking responsibility for their life and they're willing to disrupt other people in order to do that. And it's not even, it's a positive disruption. So that's kind of the irony of it. I've loved this conversation. Everybody go buy this book. It's fantastic. I'm curious uh, for people who are listening, what are some actionable steps we can take to improve our heart health and our life? Like, what are maybe your top three or five? things we could do today. Yeah. So, you know, the top uh, couple of things that I would recommend to people is, first of all, as we touched on, you know, understand where your health actually is and get the proper testing done. And it doesn't have to be expensive or extensive. It's just more targeted. You know, it's not just the basic panel that your doctor might order for you. Uh, But get your fasting insulin level checked. Get something like a coronary artery calcium scan. Understand where you are from a metabolic health perspective uh, and act upon it. So that would be first and foremost. And then, you know, like I said, pay attention to the food that you're eating. Take control of your health. Take control of the food that you're eating, start to make those intentional choices about eating whole real food um, as much as possible. And that, of course, means eliminating the processed food. Um, That really, in my experience, opens up people to the rest of it. Uh, And, you know, in the book, I talk about the principles of metabolic health and I talk about things like you know, getting enough activity in your day, getting adequate amounts of sleep, uh, managing your stress. Uh, those are all important as well. Uh, but start with the food that you're eating and take control of your health by understanding where you are. Uh, find the practitioners that are going to help you in that journey. Uh, another important concept. Uh, many of us just Again, we don't really think about the doctors, you know, we, we that we're working with. You know, they are the doctors that are close to us. Our insurance company recommended them, whatever it is. Uh, but today we have amazing resources. You know, you can get online. You can do a telemedicine visit with myself or with other practitioners that are focused on your health, your metabolic health, uh, will help you understand this whole process and help you optimize your health. So take advantage of that. Uh, don't just, again, be passive about your health and just kind of take what is given to you. For people listening, because I know that you have a virtual clinic, where can people find more of you? Yeah, so go to ifixhearts.com uh, is the best name. place to uh, find everything that we do. Me and my team work with people in many different ways. I do have the telemedicine practice. Uh, we also have you know coaching programs. We have courses. We have all sorts of information uh, to help people. Uh, you can go to ifixhearts.com right on the front page, free quiz that you can take to understand where you are from a metabolic health perspective. And then on social media, 
uh, I'm most active over on uh, X uh, these days at uh, again an active place. Yep, at iFixHearts. Uh, you can also uh, find me over on all the other channels. My name is uncommon enough that you can just search for it as well and find all my stuff. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Ovedia. And uh, stay off my operating table. Go grab it. Thank you, Mark.